Our reading this morning comes from Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 18, and also from chapter 7, verses 17 and 18. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark, and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And now Genesis seven seventeen and 18. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let's pray together as we prepare to approach God's word. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would, that you would be kind to us, that you would condescend to us, that you would pour out your Spirit upon us, um, that we might hear your voice, the voice of the one who spoke everything into being. Would we hear that voice um, who, when you came and walked in flesh upon this earth, called to the blind and they received their sight, spoke and the lame were made to walk and the deaf to hear, and who spoke even into the graves themselves and raised the dead. Father, may we hear that voice this morning. Proclaim your righteousness, your goodness, your love, your holiness, and your grace to your people through your word we pray. For it's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen. Please be seated. And the children ages 3 to 1st grade, you're dismissed to Children's Church. If you make your way to the back of the sanctuary, you'll be taken to your class. Um, We've been going through the book of Genesis together this year, and um, we come this morning to the story that we read in Genesis chapter 6, 
and 7, and it's a story that goes on through Genesis chapter 8 and chapter 9. We're actually going to look at a passage in Genesis chapter 9 next week as we conclude this story, uh, which is the story of Noah. And the story of Noah and the flood, it is a fascinating and a very familiar story as well. Um, Even if you're not very familiar with the Bible, um, chances are good that you've heard this story of Noah and the flood. Um, And it's a story, I think, that really raises a lot of questions. Um, And we have to be careful this morning that we don't get distracted in all these questions from dealing with the biggest question of the passage in the story and the major problem that is presented to us in this story. A couple of years ago, a great little video was circulating the internet, and I know that a number of you saw that video. Um, It was called, It's Not About the Nail. Um, Some of you remember this. Um, If if you're having trouble remembering it, I'll describe describe it to you. Um, But if you haven't seen it at all, make a note and and find it on YouTube later today. It's pretty funny. But the video opens with a close-up on this this woman, and she's talking, and the camera is so close that you can really only see half of her face. And as she's talking in very frustrated tones, uh, she describes this pressure that she feels in life, right? And she says, it's right up on me, right? And she, sa- she says, it's, it, it, I can literally feel it in my head. Um, And exasperated, she says that this pressure that she feels is just relentless, and she's scared because she she doesn't know if it'll ever stop, if it'll ever go away. And at that moment, the camera pans out, and you see her sitting on the couch speaking with, I guess, her husband. And, um, And he's listening to her, and he's staring at her, but he's not staring into her eyes. Um, He's looking a little up, a little further north. Uh, He's looking at her forehead because sticking in the middle of her forehead is this nail um, in her head. And it's not graphic. It's not bloody. It's just awkward looking. There's a nail in the middle of her forehead. And, um, And so you see it. And and so he's trying to empathize and reason with her. And he says, he hears her talk about all this pressure that she's feeling. And he says, you know, well, you do have a nail in your head. Um, and he says, maybe, maybe that's causing the pressure that you're feeling. And if we could just get that out, right? Um, but she keeps cutting him off, right? And she says, stop trying to fix it. I just want you to listen and just hear me, right? She wants him uh, to listen to her explain this achy feeling that she has, uh, how she's not sleeping well, how somehow all her sweaters are snagged. Um, and it's a pretty funny... Uh, funny video. You know, the point being, she wants to talk about everything but the nail. And the nail is the problem, right? See, when it comes to this story of Noah and the flood, it's really easy to get distracted from the major question and the biggest question in the story. You know, we can ask, was this a global flood, or was this a flood that was more regional, or how could all those animals get into the ark, uh, into that boat? And lots, lots of things have been written about those types of questions, and, and they're fine questions in and of themselves, and good questions. But ultimately, they're a distraction from the greatest question and the biggest problem in this story. 
See, what do we do with a God who would wipe out so much life? I mean, how do we process that? How do you deal with a God like this? What do we do with a God who acts with such acts of severity in his creation and in his world? See, wherever you land on the details of this story of the flood, almost every major author of the Bible looks back to this story of the flood and treats it as a historical event. Beyond that, even, I mean, the apostles, the prophets, they all look back to this as a historical event. But even beyond that, Jesus himself affirmed the historicity of the flood, and he even based his entire ministry on the historical event of the flood in Matthew chapter 24. And I want, what I want to do this morning is I want to be like the guy in that video and says, I hear you, and I hear all your questions about the flood. But no matter what you say or where you end on those issues, the nail is the issue, right? The big question and the big problem, the most important issue raised in this story is about God's judgment on the earth. Why does God judge with such severity? How can God's goodness and love be compatible with His acts of severe judgment? How does His judgment of mankind fit with his promise to redeem and deliver and save mankind. Um, so here's what I want us to do. I, I, want us to, I want us to talk about three things. I want us to talk first about the cause of God's judgment, and then second, I want us to talk about the goodness of God's judgment, and then finally, I want us to talk about the salvation that comes through judgment. Okay, first, let's talk about the cause of God's judgment. What provoked the judgment of God. Down in verse 11, our passage says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. You know, if you look at this story closely, you'll realize that the whole story of Noah is filled with some interesting parallels with Adam in the Garden of Eden. Um, and I'm going to mention a few of them later, but this description of the earth being filled with violence. Um, It's a play on words with Genesis chapter 1. The earth, we're told, in the very opening verses of Genesis was without form and void. It was empty, right? Um, And God, in His acts of creation, He's filling the earth, and He's filling it with beauty, and He's filling it with goodness, right? And then He makes man, and He made man, and He commands them to be fruitful and multiply and what? to fill the earth, Genesis 1, 28. See, man was to fill the earth with life. He was to fill it with flourishing, right? With beauty, with goodness. Instead, God's verdict is this. Mankind was instead filling the earth with corruption and violence. And, and sure, of course, physical acts of violence were being judged here in the flood, But you and I know this very well. For every one act of physical violence in the world, there are an untold number of other acts of violence that are emotional, that are spiritual, that are psychological, right? That that are, yeah, spiritual. Characters are assassinated with gossip, right? Uh, uh, Relationships are cut off in coldness, Women and men are objectified. Words are used as weapons to tear other people down, right? We're destroying one another's self-image. Mankind was ruining and wrecking God's beautiful creation. And that's the cause of God's judgment. 
So a holy God here was acting out of justice and righteousness. He was demanding an accounting for the ruin and wreckage of his good creation. So in verse 13, God told Noah that he had determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth was filled with violence through them. And then in verse 17, God told Noah that he was going to judge the world by sending this cataclysmic flood to destroy all flesh. And here's where this story really gets interesting, right? Is to ask this question, did it work? Right? Did this act of God's justice bring an end to mankind's corruption and wickedness and evil and violence? I think we could say, yes, it did stem the tide for a moment, um, but it didn't eradicate it. The story of your life and your experience tells you that the flood did not eradicate all corruption and wickedness and evil and violence, much less all the stories of the Bible that follow this story, right? Let's get at it by asking a very simple Sunday school question uh, this morning, right? What did Noah bring into the ark with him? And this isn't like the, the trick with Moses and Noah. What did Noah bring into the ark with him, right? And we would say, well, he brought his family, Of course, he brought his family, right? He brought his wife, his sons, and their wives. And we would say, well, what else did Noah bring into the ark? Um, He brought brought all the animals. Yeah, he did. He brought all the animals pair pair by pair, right? And we say, well, what else did he bring? You might start, well, he brought food for the animals. He would have had to have done that and so on and so forth. Well, what else? And this is where you start kind of scratching your head. Well, what else did he bring into the ark with him? Um, The Bible says he also brought his sin into the ark with him, right? Noah was blameless in his generation, but he was still a sinner. And if you keep reading through this story, almost as soon as Noah got off the ark, he got drunk and really screwed up his family in a big way. Right? The earth was wiped clean in God's judgment, but immediately the corruption and the wickedness and the violence, it rose to the surface again. You remember the TV show from the 90s, uh, Home Improvement, with Tim the Tool Man Taylor, uh, right? Um, he was always uh, hanging out in his backyard and getting advice uh, from his neighbor Wilson, who, whose face you never saw, you know, just behind the fence there. And there's this one episode where he's talking to his neighbor Wilson, and he's having a hard time disciplining his boys. And no matter what he does to discipline his boys, they just keep on fighting, and he can't stop the fighting. And so Wilson's listening along, and finally Wilson perks up, and he says, says to to Tim, he says, your problem reminds me of Verica vulgaris, um, which Tim, which he then explained to Tim is the scientific name for warts. Um, and so Tim is obviously confused, as he always is in that show. And so wise old Wilson explained what he meant, and this is what he said. He said, what I'm trying to say is most people think that the best way to get rid of a wart is to cut it off. But in actuality, that isn't the best solution. See, the wart will reappear because the virus is still below the surface. And then he added this, the only way to get rid of a wart is to go beneath the surface of the oily skin and dig out the root. 
kind of gross, but, but listen, the cause of God's judgment was the wickedness, the, the ruining and wrecking of God's creation, but ultimately not even a flood. Not even a flood that destroyed all flesh was enough to wipe out the corruption and evil. Why is that? Because of verse 5, right? The virus is still beneath the surface. It was in mankind's heart is what verse 5 is saying. It was in Noah's heart. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, right? And that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every inclination, only evil, all the time. Like toxic poison seeping and flowing out of mankind's heart. See, in English, we talk about the heart and we think about it being the emotional center or seat, the seat of emotions. But for the Hebrew mindset, that wasn't the case. The, the, in the Bible, the heart is the inner person, right? It is the essence of the person. It is the core of not just emotions, right, but of all thoughts and all desires and all volition. This flood of judgment, this act of justice shows us how a holy God has to respond to our corruption and evil, but you and I knew it before we ever came in here this morning, what's really wrong with us isn't what's on the surface of our lives. And it, even, it can't even be summarized in, in our activity and the things we do or don't do. The root of all our violence and all our evil, physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual, whatever it is, it is buried deep within our hearts. And if we're ever going to really be different if we're ever going to be changed, that root has to be dug out. Okay, let's keep going with this story then. Second, we need to talk about the goodness of God's judgment. You know, I think it's very natural that most of us, when we read this story or we hear this story, there's kind of this instinct in us to recoil from it, right? Um, to, uh, because it's a frightening story, God's judgment. It's, distress, it's distressing and it's disturbing to us. And I think that's very fair um, and a natural response. But we need to be challenged in the midst of all of this, I think, to see the goodness of God's judgment. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to just listen to a few lines from Psalm 98. Um, could have picked a n- different song, but I picked this one. Here's what this psalm says. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. Uh, Philip, our music director, is loving this, um, right? With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. And then the psalm takes a turn, right? And it's not just people who are joining this chorus of God's praise, but it is all of creation. So listen, psalmist says, let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it, let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. I mean, this amazing chorus being sung to God's praise, unbelievable. But why? Why the singing? Why should the whole world, even all of creation, burst forth into song? Here's what the psalm says. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. 
He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. We need to be challenged to see the goodness of God, even in his judgment, to see why creation itself, Paul tells us in Romans, is groaning in eager anticipation and waiting for this coming day when God would be revealed. Right? The party will be loud with joyful praise. All of creation will join into it because God's acts of judgment and his justice reveal how deeply he cares for this world. See, your heart and my heart may naturally recoil and be distressed at this picture of God's justice, but this passage says that there's someone whose heart who is filled with more pain and even more distress than yours, and it's God himself. Verse 6, and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. It would be very easy for you to read that verse and assume that it's saying that God wished he had never made man. But that's not what it's saying. What it's saying is that God was filled with sadness over what mankind had made of himself, what we had done to ourselves. And that word grieved, it is an incredibly strong word. It is a word that means deep, unfulfilled longing bitter and devastating frustration and pain. See, the story of the Bible is that in love, God bound his heart to his creation. And his heart is so deeply tethered to humanity that when something goes wrong with us, he experiences the deepest pain possible in the very center of his being. Listen, The judgment of God, it's not a contradiction of his love. It is an expression of it. The party gets loud over his judgment because it shows how deeply he cares for this world and for you, how much you matter to him, how profoundly you matter to him. I was reading a book um, a couple weeks ago, and the author, a guy named Sam Albury, if some of you know him, he was recounting an experience that he had when he was in college and very simple kind of story that he was telling, but he was given an assignment to write an essay for one of his classes, and it was about a particular subject that he cared very, very deeply about. And so he went went on in this writing to talk about how deeply he cared about this and how, with what extreme care he took um, in writing this essay and how widely he read and studied in order that he could write the best possible paper. And he, and he wrote that, you know, the very writing of it was just painstaking because he was pouring so much of himself into this paper and he worked so hard and he did a good job with it. And he was finally pleased with it. And so he, he went and he handed it in. And he said he handed it in with this great sense of anticipation that he normally didn't have whenever he handed in a paper, right? And, um, but in a few days' time, he said, he felt just crushing disappointment over that paper. And when I was reading it, I thought, oh, he got a bad grade. I've, I've had that before. Um, but he wasn't crushed in disappointment because he got a bad grade. Um, he, was right, he said he was crushed with disappointment because it was never read and it was never graded, 
right? The graduate uh, assistant who is responsible for grading the essay simply lost his essay and never bothered to find it and read it and grade it. And so he wrote about his disappointment, and he said this, my growth in education as a student were evidently not that important. Not to bother grading my work was another way of saying that as a student, I didn't really matter. My work had no value or purpose. Do you understand what we're saying here? For God not to judge us, for him not to bother evaluating us, for him not to hold us accountable, that would ultimately mean that you have no value, that you have no purpose, and that you don't matter. That God is a God who looks on his world and judges his world in righteousness and equity. That's a good thing. It means you have value. It means you have purpose. It means your life matters. It means he cares about you and his world. And you know this, don't you? That the opposite of love isn't anger. The opposite of love is indifference, tolerant indifference, right? You can only be moved to anger in life when something deeply matters to you. And I'm asking you this morning, if you can see the goodness of God's judgment, that he cares about you and his world. God, through the prophet Isaiah, this is one of my favorite passages, where he says, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? This is what God is saying. He's saying, I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine a mother's love for her nursing child. She's not indifferent to that child. And then God says, even these may forget, yet I will never forget you. You know what he's saying? He's saying, if you can imagine a mother's love for her nursing child, that is nothing compared to my love for you. Right? We have filled the earth with violence. We've proven our bent against God and towards our own self-destruction, and it has filled God's heart with pain and sorrow because of his deep love for us. Can you see the goodness of his judgment? Okay, finally, let's talk about the salvation that comes through God's judgment. The picture here in Genesis chapter 6 and following, it's not a picture of salvation from judgment, but of salvation through judgment. See, the great question that this story raises is, how can God's love be compatible with his justice? How can God's promise to say be compatible with his judgment? And the answer is, God's salvation comes through judgment. It always comes through judgment. One scholar wrote about this passage, God must destroy the earth to renew the earth. Right? God is both judging the violence in the world and at the same time saving the world. We didn't read this, but in chapter 7, we're told that eventually the fountains of the great deep burst forth, right? And the windows of heavens, great metaphors, windows of heavens were opened and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Water everywhere, in other words, right? Um, bursting forth, and the water swallowed up the world in judgment. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. As those waters increased, right, they pressed down, and they crushed all living things on the earth. Creation itself was coming undone 
It was reversing. It was unraveling. It was coming apart at the scenes. The dry land and life that God had made, it was vanishing beneath the waters that were coming again to cover the earth. But we didn't read that, but we did read this in chapter 7, verses 17 through 18. The waters increased, and we know that when they increased, they crushed all life on the earth. But verse 17 says this, the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The ark floated on the face of the waters, the same waters that crushed the world in judgment. They lifted up Noah and his family and saved them, right? Salvation came through judgment. It always does. The very next book of the Bible is Exodus, right? And it tells the story of God's people enslaved in Egypt. You remember that story too? That's another popular one, right? Whether you've read the Bible or not, right? And God sent plagues, sent plagues of flies and locusts and hail and frogs and darkness and death, right? What was that? It was a picture of creation unraveling and coming undone, right? Returning to chaos, right? And, and the absence of life. What, what was all of that? Yeah, of course it was judgment on the Egyptians, but it wasn't just that. At the very same time, it was salvation through judgment, for God's people. Now listen, Noah was a great deliverer in his day, right? You have to read all the way through Noah's story to see all of what I'm about to tell you, but Noah was like a second Adam. Here's how. Both Adam and Noah, were told in Genesis, walked with God. Both were recipients of God's promised blessing. Both were caretakers of creatures. It's highlighted in their stories. Both fathered three sons. Both were workers of the soil. Both sinned through the fruit of a tree. Remember Noah's drunkenness. Both fathered a son who would be under God's curse. Right? A lot of parallels to the story of creation in Adam. But like the first Adam, ultimately Noah, he was a failure too. And you know what that does? It leaves us looking forward to another Adam, to one who won't fail us, who would come and deliver, an Adam who would come and deal with our sin in our hearts, who would come and deal with the root of our sin. It leaves us looking forward to the ultimate Adam, who would come and save the world through judgment. Here's what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The first man, or the first Adam, was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man, or the second Adam, is from heaven. Right? God himself came down from heaven as the ultimate second Adam in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus was taken out to the cross. And on the cross, he was crushed under the flood of God's justice and wrath. And on the cross, everything that fell onto him was everything we deserved. He came to die for sin, for the sin and darkness that lies deeply buried in our hearts. And the Bible says that if you believe in him and what he did for you, the judgment he took will be your salvation, right? Because salvation always comes through judgment. The gospels tell us that when Jesus died on the cross, the earth shook and the rocks split and darkness covered the whole land. What was that? Creation unraveling, 
creation coming undone. It, it was that, but it was even more than that. It was the Creator Himself coming undone. It was the Maker of all things being unmade on the cross so that He could remake you and this world. And in His death and resurrection, death has been swallowed up in victory. It's at the cross of Jesus that we ultimately find the compatibility of God's love and justice, the compatibility of His promise to deliver and judge the world. At the cross, right, mercy and holiness collide. At the cross, grace and justice come together and embrace. At the cross of Jesus, the world is saved through judgment. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to end by giving you three little bits of application, okay? First, first bit of application is to tell you to believe like Noah. Listen, the book of Hebrews tells us that Noah became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith, that came by faith. Genesis 6, 8 says Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't earn God's favor. favor. He, he didn't win God's favor. He didn't achieve God's favor by his performance. The word favor can also be translated grace, right? He found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and he found it just by believing and by trusting in God's promise. It was a promise mentioned all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 that God would one day send a deliverer to deal with the sin in our hearts, to deal with it forever, right? To believe like Noah, you have to look back to the same promise that Noah was looking forward to in the person of Jesus. Grace can never be earned. It can never be won. It can never be achieved. It can only be found in Jesus. Second, second bit of application, you have to use the gospel to dig out the root of your sin buried deep in your heart. Like Noah, saved by grace, we are all still sinners, right? Though we have found favor in God's eyes, Sin still clings to us tightly and clings to our hearts. And to dig out the root of the sin, the gospel has to get as deep in your heart as sin is deep in your heart. And that is to say it has to get all the way in, right? It has to get all the way in and to the very bottom and the core of your being. Because it's, it's when in the core of your being that you can rest and find the deep assurance that you are loved completely and thoroughly, and entirely forgiven. It's when you get that, when you understand in the core of your being that God has satisfied all justice for you, that you are an heir of his righteousness, that's when the sin deep in your heart will begin to loosen its grip on you, and will begin to break up. And to get the gospel deep down in your heart, there are some things you have to do. You need to come to worship regularly. You need to read your Bible regularly. You need to pray. You need to spend time with other believers, all in an effort to get this gospel deep down into your heart. Okay, third, just say this. Life is full of trials. It is full of tribulations. It is full of floods. Storm clouds gather with alarming regularity in this life in a broken world right? And when you sense the coming of floods in your life, you need to remember that Jesus took the ultimate flood for you. Only when you see that, only when you understand that, 
will you know that none of life's other floods can ever crush you and overwhelm you. Only when you see that can you begin to deal with life's smaller floods, right, with grace and patience and not despairing. Because if you are a Christian, the flood is over because the Lord of the flood took the flood for you in your place. Salvation always comes through judgment. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word again this morning. We thank you for how every page of it draws us to look upon the Lord Jesus Christ, to see that he is the ultimate, the second Adam that came. And unlike the first Adam, he did not fail. He was blameless and he was righteous. And he saved us by taking judgment for us so that we would be saved through judgment. Father, we pray that this good news would reach deep into our hearts to break up and deal with the sin that still so desperately clings to us. Um, That we would remember our identity in Jesus. That we would find our rest in him to know that you love us and are satisfied with us because of Jesus. Only that will begin to heal our lives. And Father, we pray that you would do that, not because of who we are, but because of your great and wonderful grace. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.